Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 16. Being the last chapter of the book of Romans, if you're visiting Christ Church today, uh, my name's Mark, and I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. And we're glad you're with us as we come uh, in these next two weeks to concluding our discussion uh, on the book of Romans and what it means to the early church. We've entitled it, The Transforming Power of God's Faithfulness. And what we've been looking at is a unique mix of theology and practical living. The first 11 chapters establish uh, Paul's argument for the theology of grace and mercy, how the faithfulness of God has been a part of his plan for us. And it talks about the things that God has done for us while we were the enemy. And it talks about the things he's provided for us. It destroys our concept of man-made religion where we aspire to get God's approval. And instead it shows us that God has been pursuing us from the beginning of time. And over those first 11 chapters establishing our theology, we then break into chapters 12 through 15, which deal with how do we live this out? What does it look like uh, to be a person who lives by grace and under the mercy of God? How would we then treat others? How would we treat God? How would we uh, live in community with those in the church and outside of the church? And so as we um, go to this, we get to chapter 16, and this is where Paul signs off, and he expresses appreciation. He gives a couple of final challenges, and he moves on. And I'll be real honest with you, I've never preached Romans 16 before. I've always kind of uh, uh, equated it to the blah, blah, blah passages where everyone's like, you know, see you later, say hi to mom, and we'll see you in, in March, you know, that kind of deal. And then when we were establishing this series, Michael and I were discussing, and he told me something that inspired me. He said this is one of his favorite chapters to teach at the Bible college uh, to the students because he can go through and highlight every student in his class and give them an encouragement for who they are and what they stand for. I thought that's quite fascinating. So it inspired me to go ahead and attack this text uh, in the light of the way it's done. So I'm going to tell you what you see here is Paul makes three things for us to consider, three challenges, if you will. But before we go there, I want to kind of tell you, if you have the notes in front of you, you can probably see that I've entitled this sermon, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. And uh, if you don't know what that's in referencing to, get a hymnal and respect your past. Uh, If you do know what it is, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I I was born and raised in the church, and I'm so grateful to my parents for having done so. So for 51 years, uh, I've developed a heritage with my faith, and most of it's related to music. Uh, Go back to all the songs we sang when I was a little kid in church, and I'd hear people sing in four-part harmony, and it was amazing. And then to the breakout of worship choruses and so forth, and you could tell me which one you prefer, but for me, it just draws people closer to God. Music's a gift. But when I was growing up, there were songs we used to sing in the church, like when the roll was called up yonder, and when we all get to heaven, onward Christian soldiers... And one of my favorite hymns, which is not very well known, some of you might know it, but it's a song called Beulah Land. And it's, it just moves me every time I hear it. In fact, on the way over this morning, I got on Spotify and I pulled up Casting Crowns Covered It. And I was like, I'm in. And I listened to it and it's beautiful. But there's something about that generation of music I was raised in that I don't know that they intended it. And it's, I'm not being critical. It was my reaction to it. One of the issues of that is it always was talking about then, then, then. And I didn't get the same emphasis about now, now, now. And when we read Romans 16, I want you to understand that Paul is talking about present day. 
he celebrates that day, but he also lives in this day. And how do we live that out? How do we, how do we live out the promise of what we've just studied together if we're going to wait until then to do it? I'd much rather us celebrate it today, amen? And begin to live in a kingdom that's already in existence. We don't have to wait. It's already here. Jesus told us that. So here's some of the challenges that Paul gives us. Number one, we must celebrate the unity of our calling. If you were with us here last week, I won't review the whole sermon, but one of the things we were challenged with is that we need to stay unified on the most important things and allow the difference of opinions on the unimportant things. And Paul says that we must celebrate the unity of our calling, and the way he does it is unique. Verses, uh, first 16 verses of Romans 16 is one of those passages that in the past I would read through and I would just fly my eyes over it, but didn't spend a lot of attention. I want to read it for us. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my friend uh, Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampelitus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stechus. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet uh, Tripena and Tryphosa, those women who worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who had been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Philegion, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and their brothers with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now, what's fun about that passage for me is you don't know if I got the names right or not. <laughs> and this is one of the few times you ever felt sorry for me. So what's that all about? What does this text have to do with us? I want to give you five things to consider when you see how Paul ends this letter. I want you to notice the names. Strange names, but names. Names are about people. They're about stories. They're about individuals who were committed to the kingdom of God. 27 names. 26 of them lived in Rome. Paul had not been to Rome. He was not a free man in Rome. Yet Paul knew their stories. He knew their names. Phoebe's the only one that we know Paul had a direct connection to, and she was bringing the letter that they would be reading to them. So what do we learn from this? Names matter because they tell the individual stories of people. People that matter. We talk about this often, just not often enough. And I don't say it as a shaming mechanism, but I say it actually as a response for all of us to remember one of the things that I, I mean, I woke up this morning and the first thought to my mind is what a privilege I have to do what I get to do. I don't know how you wake up on Sundays, probably not as happy as me. Because what I've gotten to study all week long, I get to share with my friends, my family. And I like that. 
Not that you get to hear me talk. It's I've learned something, and I'm going to show you what I learned. Hopefully, it'll encourage you like it did me. But I also realize when I drive out here, I had nothing to do with this place, and that is a burden that I carry with gratitude. Here's why. Because this church was started by 33 people who decided they wanted to have a Bible-based, Jesus-only church, and they built one. And they gave money when they had very little to give. And they gave time and they did things that some that we don't do anymore because they were techniques. But a lot of what they did when they started this church, we still do. They still gather around the Lord's Supper to remind us what makes us common. They gather around the Word of God because the Word of God changes history. They gathered together and worshiped God because He's worthy. And they did it in a little basement. They dug a basement before they built the upper floor. And they met for years in that basement because that's all they could afford. But they gave and they served and they loved. And they built another building to handle the people that were coming. And they built some education classes for the kids. And they began to grow and grow and grow. And most of us don't even know their names. I don't want you to feel shame about that. Please understand this. Even if we don't know their names, God does. And when Paul mentions individual names, he's mentioning people who we have never met, but they are a part of our family. They're a part of our legacy. They built a foundation on which we add. But the service that Paul is mentioning here is these names matter because these were people that were building the kingdom of heaven. When Paul was in other parts of the world building the kingdom of heaven, he never discounted what was going on elsewhere. He found value in it, and he named them by name, and he said to the church, remember and appreciate. So I say to our church, remember and appreciate. The truth of the matter is, and if this doesn't fill your bucket, I don't have anything else to offer you. God knows what each and every one of us has done to promote the kingdom. And he does not look down on it. Whether you gave all the money in the world or whether you were the widow that gave the two coins, God notices every act of building his kingdom. He's invited us into it and he cherishes everyone. It can be a beautiful piece of art in the eyes of the world or it can be a hand-drawn painting that only a mother would put on a refrigerator. God loves every one of them because he cares about the individual. I want you to also notice, or in John 10, 3, Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. God does know what you're doing. He knows what you're trying to do and he knows the love in which you do it. So whether anybody else ever notices, don't be discouraged by what the world applauds. Remember that God sees it all. Secondly, notice the relationships. Paul uses differing terms. Sister, brothers, mother, servant, saint, worker, relative, approved, elect. See, Paul sees the diversity of what everybody's contributing. We talked about that last week. Or excuse me, two weeks ago. Back in chapter 12 and 13 when he lists the gifts, everyone's contributing their peace and God's doing something amazing with it. Thirdly, notice how Christ-centered these relationships are. If you just begin in verse 2 down to the verse 13, what you're going to see is Paul has an expression he uses often, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, in Christ, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. Paul's saying it's not about fame. It's not about celebrity. It's not about branding. It's all about whether or not we have a relationship with Jesus, which makes us brothers and sisters. Something that strikes me quite often, and I don't share this like it's superior knowledge, it's just something God's really burdened me with. Some of the, I know this for a fact, some of the closest friends I have in the entire world, if it were not for Jesus Christ, I never would have met them. I wouldn't have the best relationships I have in my life if it weren't for Jesus. 
And Paul is honoring those moments when he lists not only their names, but that they're in the Lord and that these relationships are going to last. And notice the, the work is taking place all around them. Paul tells Phoebe to take it to the churches in Rome, not the church. In verse 5, Priscilla and Aquila have a church in their house. In verse 14, there's another house listed. In verse 15, there's another house listed. So we realize it wasn't one church. It was many churches, and Paul treated them all the same. I know you don't come for editorial comments, but here's one. I'm going to warn you. Oh, I pray one day the church will stop competing with the church. That we'll stop trying to feel better than other churches or feel superior to churches that don't do it our way or be... uh, jealous of churches that are having more worldly success. Our enemy is not a local church. Our enemy are the forces of darkness that steal people's souls and enslave them to sin. So it's not about what brand or what name or who's the preacher or who leads worship or how many people go. None of those things truly matter if Jesus Christ isn't the center of all of it. So Paul congratulates and sends a word of encouragement to all the house churches, no matter the size, no matter the strength, because he focuses them on Jesus. And fifthly, notice the love that permeates. In verses 5, 8, 9, and 12, Paul calls these these fellow servants loved. In verse 4, he talks about Priscilla and Aquila risking their lives. In verse 6, he talks about Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. See, Paul is celebrating the unity we have. He's celebrating the things that we hold to. Last week, if you were with us, I preached through the entirety of Romans 14 and the first seven verses of Romans 15. And the crux of the message is we need to hold together the unity of the things that matter and allow a diversity of opinions on those that don't. I received three very beautiful, kind emails this week. All three emails dealt with people who were struggling in understanding when should they stand up and when should they sit down. And they were so well written. And they were parents worrying about children or family members. And so I want to reiterate what we said last week. Not as a correction, but I want to encourage your heart with this. There are things that are true that cannot be denied by the world. We must stand for them. So when when God says it in the Bible, that's the way it is. I don't care if we voted away with legislation, and I don't care if it's popular, and I don't care if people look down on us. If we really believe he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, then what he says should stand. And the truth of the Bible must be defended. But it must be defended lovingly. Not with an air of superiority or snideness, if snideness is a word. So we're going to stand on the truth of God's word, and we're going to stand on the fact that Jesus Christ is the only thing to be worshipped. Everything else is your opinion to keep to yourself. Now, I would love to say that no one should eat peas. In fact, I think I have a mandate. But I know some of you will disagree with me. And at the end of the day, we separate on things like that. Some of you perform, I I started talking about hymns of the past, and your ears perked up, and you thought, oh, those were the good old days. They may have been. But we're living in an age where we're meeting this culture where it is. And I love the music as much today as I love Beulah Land from a long time ago. And if you and I disagree, it's an opinion. We're entitled to them, but as long as we don't disagree on the Bible and Jesus Christ, church, we're unified in heart, aren't we? And this is the challenge of God's faithfulness. 
that we need to put our trust in what the Lord has given us, not what man does. Then he leads us to the second challenge. We must care for and protect the purity of the church. I want to tell you that the unity of the church is worth fighting for. But the unity of the church is fragile. And if we don't protect it through the purity of God's word, it can be devastated. And we all know that the testimony of the church in the world is diminished because church people can't get along and won't get along. Arguing over matters of opinion and not the things of truth. Not holding Jesus as the foremost. Instead, we become scared and fearful of what might happen if we don't do it a certain way. We need to be very, very careful of that. Listen to verse 17. Paul talks about the fragility of our unity can be taken care of. He said, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. As Paul comes to a conclusion, he challenges us in some very important things. The unity of the church can be destroyed by false teaching. So to answer those that wrote and those of you that wanted to write, I want to tell you, stand for the things the Bible clearly teaches, and when the Bible is silent, we should remain silent. Paul says you can have your opinion about it, and you can actually make a choice of how you want to live your life in light of the silence of Scripture, but don't make that a test of fellowship. And then Paul changes gears, and he says to us, be careful of those who are going to deceive and divide over things that are not in the Word of God. Be careful because they're filling their own appetites. They're doing things that make them feel good. And in a culture we live in of celebrity pastors, isn't that oxymoronic? Celebrity servants? That seems strange. Where what church you go to and who you listen to and who you don't, who your podcast preacher is and who your televangelist is, be very, very careful. Even in this place, be very, very careful of the relationships you build with man when you foremost must have a relationship with Jesus to be able to understand how to have a relationship with man. The authority is the word of God and the king of kings. It's not your local pastor. And so when we look at what he's teaching us, he tells us to do something very creative in verse 9. He says, be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Where does wisdom come from? It's a combination of experience and knowledge. It's having the truth and living that out. And wisdom comes in that way. So he says, be wise about what is good, which means you cannot farm out your understanding of Scripture to a professional. It must be our own journey. We must open the word and in community learn from it. So when we are alone and isolated, and Satan is a coward, he's not going to attack you in a group. He's going to attack you in isolation. It's a lion that's looking to prowl and kill. And lions do not attack a herd. They pick out the one weak one, isolate and destroy. So I'm not causing you to panic. What I'm telling you is there are opportunities for you to grow in your understanding of the word. Get in a small group and study together. Come on Wednesday nights to a class where you can learn more about what the Bible says so you don't have to rely on the professionals. You can trust yourself and your understanding of Scripture in community to know what the Bible teaches. Be wise in those things. Choose what is good. And then be innocent about what is evil. When we were kids, I didn't, we weren't poor, but we didn't have a lot. 
And so my dad bought this pop-up camper, and our vacations were down to Tennessee to the Smoky Mountains. And we had a lot of fun, because I had, I had three brothers. We had a built-in ball game every day of our lives. And I enjoyed that, but we would go down. And my dad, who was really one of those permissive parents who allowed us to experience things and learn for ourselves, he would sometimes lose his mind. When we would go hiking or out in the woods or we would go toward a cliff, my two older brothers and I, our natural nature was to walk right to the edge of it. And my dad would go off. He would ground you for the rest of your life. Get back here, boy. I'll just go to the camp. We're like, where does this come from? And I remember thinking in my head, I didn't say it out loud because I feared him, but I remember thinking in my head, chill, old man, I got it. I've never fallen over a cliff. I'm still here. You're wrong. And then I had children. And I realized where that anger, that voracious appetite to protect me came from. He loved me more than my wisdom could know. Because what he's thinking is, if you fall over there, I'm going to have to explain it to your mother. (laughs) Understandable. He wouldn't have missed me for a second, but Marilyn would have. And so in those moments protecting me, he knew I didn't have the wisdom, I didn't have the capabilities to actually know what I was risking. Why do I tell you that story? Be innocent about what is evil. If your spiritual walk is to see how close you can get to sin and not get stung, the Bible says that's a fool. What you're saying to God is this. I got it, old man. I know what your word says, but I know better. Now, fortunately, God doesn't ground you. But God has warned you through the spirit and through the word. Don't play with evil. It is seductive and it is deadly. And the unfortunate part in a room like this Almost every single one of us could tell a story where God was right and we were stubborn. Amen? And if you don't have one of those stories, thank the Lord. But see, in all of us, be wise about what is good, which means you need to know what it is. And be very innocent about what is evil. Now I know, in light of last week, there are some of us that want to be in charge of putting the line how close you can get to the edge. You don't get to do that. You don't get to decide for anybody else what that is. But you need to encourage everybody to trust the Lord and be innocent of that which is evil. Paul is telling us that what we believe matters and what the scriptures teach matters. And we need to protect one another and hold each other accountable to what the word of God clearly says. That is one of the transforming powers of God's faithfulness is his word can be trusted even when our world today says it's archaic. I'm here to tell you it's alive and active, and it is accurate. And this is what the word promises us. And then Paul concludes with, we must cherish our chance to bring God glory. He says, we have an opportunity to not only thank those who have served and set our foundation, but we must protect the unity and purity of our church. And I don't mean the local church, I mean every branch, every Concept. Every church that preaches Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is our brother and sister. We may not agree with everything they teach, but if they're preaching Jesus, don't you think God is able to straighten out errors? And so we come to the final one that we must cherish our chance to bring God glory. Verse 25 to 27, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long 
ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is where Paul drops the mic. And he just walks away. Here's what he's told us in a very simplified form. He says, the gospel works. The gospel has worked since it began in Genesis 3, and it's still working today. Are you in on it? Michael said in week two of our series, Michael DeFazio said that if we get the gospel right, it'll set our feet on the right path. If we get the gospel wrong, we won't be promoting the one who the gospel is truly about. And so he's saying to the church in Rome, you have a chance to write into the story of the history of God's work. You have a chance to be a part of it. And he's saying to the church here and to the churches in the four state areas and all over the globe, even today, we have a chance to write into the story of what God is doing to bring Jesus Christ to redeem all things. It's his story, and we get to be a part of it. So this is a silly illustration, but I am full of them. When I was a kid, I think I was 9 or 10, I can remember this vividly. I was in church not paying attention as I was apt to do. And our preacher was giving a sermon on evangelism, so I was less interested. And he pulled out a Pez dispenser. You know what those are? Those weird candy dispensers that have like a cartoon head on them. And then you pop the head open and out of the neck comes the candy, which is really weird. (laughs) But he brought up a Pez dispenser, and I remember it was Donald Duck. And he was talking about, and he said, and he got my attention. I was this little chubby kid. I was like, candy, yes, hello. My kind of church. And he says, who wants a piece of candy? And reflexively. And he said, Mark, come up here. And then I realized what a big mistake I made. <laughs> and I'm standing next to my preacher with a best dispenser. And he cracks back Donald's head. And out comes this yellow piece of candy. And I love anything citrus. And it was lemon. I remember putting that in my mouth. And I must have crunched loud enough that they heard and they all laughed. He said, you want another one? Absolutely. And he cracked his head back open, and I pulled another one out. And then he asked me a powerful question. He said, do you, want, do you want this? And I looked at my mom, and she gave me the approval. And I took the Pez dispenser from me. He said, I'll give it to you, but here's what I need you to do. I don't want you to eat any more of the candy. I want you to take and give candy to people around the room you want to have some. And I walked off stage understanding evangelism. God gave me something as a sweet act of kindness, and I liked it. And he let me taste it again, and I liked it. Then he said, if you really like it, why don't you let somebody else like it? And I walked around the room while he was preaching, handing out pieces of candy to old people. And they loved it. And evangelism was never the same for me. And this is what Paul's telling us in Romans 16, 25 to 27. God has been so sweet to you, church. Amen? And there are people who don't know how good he is. Why don't you introduce him? Why don't you let him taste the goodness of the Lord's faithfulness, the power? Because when the world sees that people from different backgrounds with all of these distinctions can come into a room and we don't agree on politics and we don't agree on economics and we don't agree on so many things we won't even talk about because we have one thing that binds us together that is worth everything in the world and that is Jesus Christ is our Lord and justifiably so. 
And the world needs to taste that, don't they? We need to take the sweetness of the gospel that God has been writing since Genesis 3, and we need to give it to people who have no idea what it's about. You see, when it comes to the glory of God, it's not ours. It's not your church's name. It's not your preacher, your favorite teacher. It's none of those things. The glory belongs to God. He started this story. He let us in on the story, and we are a big part of it. But Jesus is the real part of it. So the glory of God must be taught by those who have received it. And that's how Paul ends this letter, which is phenomenal. He doesn't even tell them to go do it. But when you read it, you get to the conclusion. Your only thought is, I got a story to tell about a powerful God who redeems everything. So what are we to do with this? Your preacher would like to offer you a challenge after you've heard Paul's three. And here's what the challenge is. Because the unity of church is important, this unity is crucial. And because it's so fragile, and the world is looking for a church where actually love exists and not just is preached about, I would like to ask you to do something that I don't often do, but I feel compelled by the text to do this. Every text in the Bible has an invitation for us. It's just figuring out what it is. Well, here's yours. I'd like you to do it today, but I realize for some of you, you've got to go to work or you've made obligations, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with those. So if you can't do it, the next... The reason I'm asking you to do it today is because if you're anything like me and you don't do it today, you'll acknowledge it's a good idea and you'll never do it. I'd like you to make a commitment as an act of worship to God that you think of somebody who's invested in you. And we live out Romans 16, 1 through 16. That you, that you stop and think of somebody who introduced you to the gospel. Someone who gave you that first taste. Or maybe it was someone who, when you were walking away from the truth of Scripture, encouraged you, challenged you, got up in your face, and called you to be the better version of what the Spirit could do in you. Or maybe it's someone who you've seen from a distance who has dedicated themselves to promoting the gospel and sharing it with others, and it has inspired you, and you're grateful for them. Maybe it was a grand act, or maybe it was a little widow dropping two tiny coins in the plate. Whatever it is, I'd like you to take a second and just think. In fact, we're going to pray a prayer together. I'm going to ask you just for the next few seconds to pray this prayer inside your mind and heart. Father, who? Let's pray that prayer. Maybe the Lord's put one person, maybe two or three. So I ask you as an act of worship, could you write a note this week? Or maybe text them. A phone call would be awesome. And if you're fortunate enough to live near them, maybe you invite them for a cup of coffee or take them out to their favorite restaurant. And what you want to say to them is, you're not my Jesus, but you introduced him to me. You made him real. You made him powerful. You, you showed me value in myself and in him. Because what Paul says is, look at the people doing the work around you that have, that have bought into the kingdom and they're investing in the kingdom and let's celebrate them and let's be a people that are full of gratitude. 
Let gratitude feed our unity and protect us from division. And you can imagine in your own heart what it would mean to you to receive a text or a phone call or a note today from somebody. So let's give the gift of encouragement because Romans is an encouraging note to all of us. God is faithful. God is good. And God can be trusted. So let's take the sweetness of the gospel. Let's encourage those who invested it in us. And just imagine what it will be like when Christians around the world are blessed because other Christians saw the worth that they put in the gospel and the worth they put in us. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.